1: At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room?
0: And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of May 11th or so, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And today I'm joined again by Josh Blank, research director for the Texas Politics Project. Welcome back, Josh.
1: Thanks for having me yet again.
0: Yet again, so <laughs> it's been a, a busy week here in Texas. It's been a few busy weeks, yeah. uh, at least in the year. world of in the in the world of Texas politics. Um, but it's been a, a busy week for you know in a particular way, or at least one particular way. It's been busy this week, is that we've seen you know some of the elite tensions, particularly though not exclusively inside the Republican Party that have been. You know, ever present in some ways, but certainly brewing uh, over the last couple of years, really break the surface. So, you know, let's let's start with some of the news in that area. So, yesterday, and something that I you know I think most people found not amazingly surprising, although there was some uncertainty in who was going to jump in first. And uh, former Texas State Senator Don, Don Huffines. Uh, announced that he is challenging Greg Abbott in the Republican primary in 2022. Um, you no, know, Huffines is an interesting person to do this. Uh, you know, given his background, I think there were some people that that found him. I, I think, particularly those that don't follow politics in the state, if you look at this on the surface, I think you'd be justified in thinking, you know, frankly, who is this guy to yes. challenge Greg Abbott? Um,
1: or, or even if you knew him a little bit, you'd say, why this guy? So, you know, Huffine's
0: background, he was Texas State Senator from, you know, technically 2015 to 2019. He was uh, elected to the uh, one of the Dallas area Senate seats in 2014. And in what was um, a, an interesting primary at the time that people, you know, is now, you know, eight years ago, people might have forgotten. But in, in 2014, he challenged John Corona who at that point was you know a pretty well established figure i mean not beyond reproach and it's not that you know he wasn't without his vulnerabilities but Corona was a, you know a, a, an important chairman and, and a big player in the Texas Senate and Huffines defeated him in the 2014 primary um a, as part of what is now we we saw at the time and i think now still fairly see as the cresting of of the Tea Party wave in the Republican Party in Texas, but then what a difference four years could make! In, in twenty eighteen, up for reelection, um, he had a an easy pr- he had an easy primary run, but then was defeated by the Democrat Nathan Johnson, who now holds that seat and pretty handily in twenty eighteen by eight and a half points. Now you know a lot of people that won by a lot in twenty eighteen, not to take anything away from from Senator Johnson, who it turned out has been a, a very active and capable member of the Senate. You know, 2018 was a good democratic year, but still, in terms of thinking about, you know, the who is this guy question, you know, to lose, you, if you lost by eight and a half points, even in 2018, you lost by eight and a half points. So, You know, Hufflines, you know, has an interesting background then also within the party. His brother ran for an open Senate seat in 2018, uh, which he lost in that primary to Angela Paxton, who now holds that seat, obviously, for those of you listening who will know this, but for for full disclosure, the, the wife of the Attorney General Ken Paxton. And that was a very bitter... Hard-fought primary in which, you know, the Attorney General Baxton also caught a little bit of incoming yeah, as part u- of that, and and ugly. from the Huffines brothers.
1: Yeah, it's pretty ugly. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, it, it
0: was an ugly primary. Now, so now you know, a couple years later, Huffines, um it has jumped in the race, and he kind of telegraphed this. If you if you go back, t- you know, to you know a little more than a year ago, in March of 2020, he. Gained some uh, attention by writing an op-ed that that ran in a couple of the major papers. I think I saw it in the Statesman, but I think it was in a couple. It was picked up here and there. Um, in the early day, and this was the early days of the pandemic, in which, you know, he was in that vanguard of far-right Republicans that were criticizing the governor from early on in the pandemic for uh, the closures and for the effect on business and, you know, the the uh, what we're seeing is impingements on personal freedom, and technically they were impingements, but, you know, seen as an unwarranted, seen as unwarranted impingements on personal freedom by the governor in the early period of fighting the pandemic. And then, you know, even as he was declaring Huffines, you know, you're to get a portrait of him kind of out there in the, the right Wing ether of the Republican Party. He also had a walk-on role in the big Washington Post story written by multiple authors. That if you didn't see that, I think I feel like a lot it raised a lot of eyebrows, but you know, it didn't get make quite the splash on social media and in the general discussion. I thought it might, because it was so much going on this week. But um, this is a story about a group that was formed in 2018. To try to cultivate skepticism about the integrity of elections in Texas, and this story was really, you know, on one hand, we'll just call it what it was. There's part of it that was like, wow, what a crazy story, you know, a bunch of guys meeting in, a, in a, this this guy's airplane hangar to be briefed, you know, to have their cell phones taken away like at a Dave Chappelle show or something, and briefed on, you know, this set of accusations about election, you know, fraud. And, you know, with with tons of walk ons, I mean, uh, you know, they tried to talk Huffines into being a litigant and to a, a call for a recount, which he declined and to question the, the the results, but also included Austin's own Laura Presley, who maybe not that well known outside of Austin. But if you follow Austin politics, unsuccessful city can city council candidate who herself you know, made loud and repeated uh, accusations about election fraud and, and a broken process in her loss in her 2018 city council run. But also, you know, lots of people Pete Sessions, Louis Gomart Louis Gomert, Sidney Powell, uh, Rudy Giuliani, of course, the, you know, becoming the Rosetta Stone of. You know, right wing election fraud politics sounds
1: like sounds like a Chappelle show audience.
0: Yes, yes, lots of lots of stuff going on in the story, and and that story happened to come out on the day, or you know, maybe the the evening before, Huffines announced his race. So, Judge, you know, Don Huffines, what do you make? What do you make of Don Huffines? Maybe of Don. Let's put it this way: What do you? You've already said, I think, what you make of Don Huffines. What do you make of Don Huffines' candidacy?
1: Uh, not much. I mean, sorry, that's the quick, short, short hot take. I mean. You know, it's interesting. OK, next
0: topic. No, next,
1: oh, I we could be done <laughs> quick. I don't know. You know, it's sort of interesting because, I mean, it was pretty clear for a while that somebody was going to emerge as a Republican primary challenged ab. And the truth is, I don't think this is the last one. I mean, there's going to be some number of kind of lesser known candidates than Don Huffines. And there might be some, you know, there might be there might be some more known candidates, I mean, the people, you know, they're, they're you know, receiving some speculation right now and includes Sid Miller and, and, and Alan West as possibilities. Um, you know, and then, as you th- were
0: saying yesterday, we were talking about, and there's also, there's always just like some people you know, the folks we have to include in polling because they're on the ballot that get right. less than well, a percent or a percent or something and that are have often have, you know, funny ballot, attractive names or something.
1: Yeah. Oh, like L- Larry secede Kilgore. Is an example of like one of those and we know this because we always have to put them on our trial ballots so we go and we look them up just figure out you know and you get to be called whatever you want to be called on the ballot so there you go so i mean you know i don't think this was super surprising i mean I, you know i mean there's a lot of things i could say about this and it's kind of hard to know what exactly to think about which is i think kind of what's so interesting about it in the moment that we're in right now in the sense that you know you kind of look everywhere and there's some elite conflict and you know, the elite conflict doesn't kind of fit into the neat boxes in the way that we usually talk about it, you know? And so on the one hand, I would say it's not surprising people are going to emerge. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one, I think, you know, despite all the strengths of Abbott's positions, you know, again, we've written recently how his position has weakened over the year of the pandemic, which I think is unsurprising for anybody, <laughs> right? Um, but he still has, you know, 77% of Republicans approving of the job he's doing. Is it, in, is it a as intense as it used to be now, but it's still 77%. He still has, you know, $40 million in the bank. Now, Don Huffines, I understand, probably has a lot of resources he can lean on as well when it comes to running a campaign. But, you know, he has to uh, spend his own money. He has to spend his own money. That's right. <laughs> But I mean but that also speaks to something too which is you know it's an interesting moment so I can you know I can there's some things, aspects of this make ton of sense right I mean you know you've got a Democratic in the Democrat in the White House and Democrats in control of Congress I think there are a lot of Republicans who are looking at this upcoming election thinking this is a good opportunity for me and if that means I have to get run over another Republican to get there so right. be it right I think there's some long-term frustration I mean people talk about this all the time but in a state that's been dominated by Republicans in the statewide level and who aren't going on to become president or do other things you end up with a log jam and i think there's a lot of people who would like to move up and so i think there's a certain amount of you know of that going on um you know and then i think the question that's sort of a little bit harder for me to to gauge here is sort of i think the question that we're all looking at the sort of i think underlying a lot of this elite conflict generally which is you know how much of this You know, and Huffines could stand in for anybody, but how much of this is, you know, some of these politicians looking out at the Republican electorate right now and saying, you know, I think if I get to the right of anybody on this, I've got a good chance, you know, that that if I can, if I can, if I can set, if I can create some distance, you know, between Abbott and myself on immigration and border security, election integrity and my fealty to Trump, maybe I can just slip in here.
0: Right, And I I think that
1: there's a lot of that going on out there right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, in some way, I mean, Huffine's announcement was almost like a, a parody is too strong a word, but it's, you know, if you're going to write the TV version of somebody that was going to, that was going to challenge Abbott, you know, in this environment, you know, part of his announcement was, you know, about finishing the wall. Yeah. On the border, right? Well, and so I guess, that, I mean, that, in some ways, that almost distills, well, you know, funny. the mood in a very, you know, interesting well, you to know, funny what, way.
1: What's funny is, you know, if you take Huffines' background a little bit, not necessarily his politics, but his background, you know, you'd almost think that Huff Huffines would be challenging him more as like a, a center-right Republican, you know, just in terms of sort of the businessman. I mean, the idea that, you know, the real criticism with Abbott began with, the sh- you know, with any sort of shutdowns and mask mandates of business and the idea that there was a strong sort of business, you know let's say Republican business community backlash. And I mean- Well,
0: you know, I think the interesting thing about this is I probably only partially agree with that in that, you know, I mean, I think, you know, in the beginning it was, it was both. Right. Right. And, and that was the, and that was, and, you know, hence well, right. the problem, right? There was the conventional, you know, but I, but I think the kind of center right challenge was to some degree- much more mixed than the, you know, the to Abbott's right challenge, which from the beginning, you know, had a much more Trumpian flair to it. I mean, the business stuff was certainly, you know, certainly wrapped up in in it. But, you know, and, and I think, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking like, as we were talking about, there's going to be all these challengers to Abbott and everyone's running to the right. You know, will anybody try to occupy that more traditional center right period. I mean, clearly the governor, you know, the governor has decided, it seems to me pretty evidently beginning midsummer that, you know, he is not, he is not going to try to occupy that position, at least not, you know, before the general election comes around.
1: No. You know, I mean, and
0: so, you know, there is space there, but I, you know, I don't know that there are votes there. Well,
1: you that's know, that's the, it, well, it's an empty
0: space. Well,
1: that's the interesting thing. I mean, we were sort of talking this before, and I was saying, you know, my impression sort of, you know, Right after the election, after January 6th, and sort of in the first kind of month or so of the year, there was a lot of like press coverage that was talking about, you know, sort of the the coming Republican civil war. And I mean, and the thing that it seemed to me like, and this is my impression of that coverage. So, you know, maybe somebody else has a different impression, but, you know, my impression of that coverage was was this idea that, you know, the center right was going to reconstitute itself now that Trump had been kicked from office and banned from social media. And they were going to, you know, try to retake over the party and really everything we've seen both in Texas, honestly, and nationally since then has actually said, no, the, you know, whether you want to call it the far right wing, whether you want to call it the Trump wing, whatever that collection of attitudes and, you know, that's out there sort of on the far side, that's where all the activity is. And that's where it's coming from. I mean, you know, I think about, you know, like the, the issues the legislature is taking on right now and the idea that like, you know, constitutional carry. You know, no chance, no votes, not only two sessions, not only two sessions ago, last session, but two weeks ago. And all of a sudden it's like, no, nope, we're going to do it. The idea of an abortion ban without an exception for rape or incest as a possibility is like, well, OK. I mean, but this is, this is the sort of thing that Republicans here used to try to avoid these kinds of votes.
0: Well, see, I think you do something interesting there, though, that I, that leads me to kind of, you know, I kind of structure this a little bit differently, I think. So, you know, there was this the big post-Trump discussion Which you know I think of is, you know, focused a little bit more in the national realm, and I not you know I don't know that, I mean I think different people had different expectations about. I mean there was certainly the big question: Trump has lost. How much has he delegitimized himself as a result of January sixth? And he's kicked off social media platforms. You know what is this fight going to look like? You know I, I you know I my impression and you know I don't you know like you said you know I think one could. This is kind of a maybe more Rorschach than analysis, you know. It, it felt to me like, you know, that was that was sort of. I don't think anybody's really presupposing the outcome. I think some coverage, you know, felt like you know either consciously or unconsciously conveyed having a preference or a dog in the fight. Well, I, I don't, and think that was, was in there. But I, you know, so I think I don't
1: think it was presupposing an outcome. I just think that the way the coverage, you know, like focused on like you know go back and look at coverage, I guess, of Liz Cheney, you know, two, three months ago. And there was an idea that there'd be a bunch of activity in the space. It doesn't mean they were going to win. It wasn't presupposing an outcome. Yeah. Well, and true. there has been. <laughs> well, but there has been a win, but the win was not with those people. No,
0: no. I said there has been a lot of activity in the space. Yeah, and, I, right. and I'm still not quite, you know, we'll see what happens if they, when, you know, when they boot Liz Cheney. But I think the other piece I noticed the way you discussed, you discussed that is that you then also kind of transitioned into like that fight in the legislature. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I mean, as we've written, you know, those things are interacting. Yeah. And certainly like, you know, Huffine's thing about the wall is, you know, an argument for, you know, that some, some degree of transference (laughs) or projection of that national fight into the state level. On the other hand, as you and I have written absent Donald Trump, you know, is there a pretty strong idea that whether it was the wall or something, or it was a pretty strong possibility whether it was the wall or something else that somebody challenging Abbott would use immigration as the club to beat him with, to try to beat him with, is pretty high based on what we know about our data and this, what we know about Texas public opinion and and the culture. Now, you know, so discussion in and of itself, you know, yet to be determined because we're too early in the cycle about or in the historical trajectory of this to figure out like, you know, Trump, you know, Trump inflamed these sentiments, Trump, you know, pick your, pick your description of that dynamic. I think it's still kind of up in the air, you know, Mm -hmm. but I think this does, you know, there is something very, you know, like kaleidoscopic about this conflict at this moment. That's always been there. Right. I mean, and, and we've, we've written about this too. There's, This notion of, yes, there's a left-right fight going on here. There's, you know, an ideological fight. There's a sectoral fight going on there, here. You know, it has to do with where businesses line up and then what, which businesses line up where, et cetera. You know, the, the, you know, what's become the now traditional, the business, business slash elites versus the Republican grassroots, quote unquote, which I'm also, is it has some limited utility, but as long as you know where the boundaries are. And then there's just like basic ins and outs. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, is Alan West how much more conservative really is Alan West than pick the- your pick your incumbent, right? <laughs> well, right. So, you know, there's all of that going on. Now I think so, you know, that's there to be sorted out. And I think this is and and the Huffines candidacy is simply the opening salvo in this. Yeah, You know, we talked last week about the New York Times article uh, that Ileana Plotz wrote that was, you know, very thick with, you know, Paxton saying this and then having to change his, you know, changing his mind and, you know, accusing the story of being fake news. And Ileana Plotz just kind of said, well, by the way, I've got tapes. so Yeah, like you you
1: agreed to it being recorded, so. (laughs)
0: Yeah, so, you know, know, (laughs) but, you know, that was full of like Sid Miller and Alan West and Patrick and all of this going on. But we saw another like interesting element of this, which I think is just as complicated but a little more localized and speaks to this legislative piece yesterday when, you know, in the house on, you know, another front of Republican conflict. Well,
1: like say, the institutional conflict is the that, one you left out.
0: That, that introduces, well, that, cause I see, I didn't leave it uh, out. Ah,
1: transition. I was headed
0: in that direction. I'm taking notes. The house, uh, <laughs> you know, when the house engaged in a very long debate, uh, as we record this on Tuesday, this debate took place on Monday. During the day Monday and into the, you know, into the evening on HB3, which was the priority bill, designed to respond to the, the, the powers exercised by the governor during the pandemic. And, you know, as, as Cassie Pollack, um, I don't want to be too familiar, Cassandra Pollock in the Texas Tribune, you know, wrote shortly after, you know, described it as a sweeping bill that would reform the governor's emergency powers during a pandemic and involve the legislature during such instances. Now, that is a very, that really sets the stage for a lot of stuff that was going on. There were You know, dozens of amendments, you know, that were pre-filed and that were debated. You know, the legislation, the debate, the amendments that got accepted, you know, all illustrated a lot, you know, some shifting coalitions both within the Republican Party and between Republicans Democrats. And, you know, it underlines really just how careful we have to be about you know, to flatten these conflicts, there's a well, lot of dimensionality. Well, to I was gonna
1: say the other dimension that came up in that also, in terms of the conflict, was uh, I mean, you could you could say just state say versus urban, local. Yeah, state versus. I was gonna say I was actually gonna be a little more to say state versus urban governments. Yeah, I mean, well, although basically. you know, yeah,
0: it, with increasingly in the yeah, right, the the state being the you know animated by you know rural and and suburban members, I think in that and that and that is where we see a little bit of a reversion back to. The the a partisan thing because of the a partisan cleavage because of the way that those voters line up and those parties that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is the you know what does the bill do? You know the bill does a bunch of things and with amendments this will not be exhaustive. But you know just the the main things it requires the legislature to convene in a special session if a if a pandemic disaster declaration lasts longer than 120 days. It affirms the governor's ability to suspend state laws during a pandemic, and still and allows the governor to override local orders by county judges and and mayors if they contravene these orders. Uh, obviously, an ongoing point of conflict during most of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interestingly, and in, and in terms of these institutional an institutional assertion, it creates a twelve member legislative oversight committee, much discussed made up of the heads of the two chambers, the lieutenant governor, the presiding officers, lieutenant governor and the speaker, the key committee chairs. And this committee is empowered to terminate the governor's disaster declaration to contravene, you know, rules, orders, et cetera, if the legislature is not in session. Right. Which is interesting. Um, yeah. And that includes that special session. So this is kind of the default, like, you know, okay, if the, You know, immediately, as I read it, this 12 member legislative oversight committee convenes and is there kind of looking over the governor's shoulder, which is an interesting. I wonder if any of this is
1: constitutional. I mean, this is um, not my this is not my area of expertise. uh, Well, you know,
0: I mean, I I think we might hear about that and, and, and that and I think that's why the bill in the Senate that did fewer things that we'll talk about actually called for a constitutional election for
1: this. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea of a legislature—I mean, if if you know the ability to sp- call special sessions is the power of the governor, it's odd that the legislature could basically force the, the executive to engage in one of.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think this is written into the emergency—the existing emergency statutes. As I as I looked at it, I think it car—and I could be wrong about this, but I think it carves out this particular—it carves out a class of emergencies that are defined by pandemics and so distinguishes it from like hurricanes, but it falls within that existing statute. I think somebody will certainly let us know if that's wrong. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so. and the governor would also need permission from the legislature to, ex- to extend the declaration. Um, you know, law, you know, some, some, some elements longer than 30 days, particularly requiring face masks, who to thunk it. You know, mm-hmm. limiting certain medical procedures, closing or capping business operating capacity. In other words, it gives the legislature kind of a, you know, a sign, you know, a, a veto over those particular things that were most particular, most politically loaded. And, you know, along those things well, that we were talking about a few
1: minutes ago. The best example of that was the amendment that would have banned or prohibited local governments from having mask mandates ever. Right. So and that was one that originally passed and then they did, redid the vote and they found that it failed. Right. It 72 to 71, which is just, you know, again, this yeah. is a state where, our you know, our polling has shown consistently at least 80 percent of Texans wearing masks when they leave their homes. Including, you know, that's 80, and I say at least 80%, I'm talking about Republicans, but it's higher amongst independents, it's higher amongst Democrats. Yeah. So really, you know, as much as well, we, it was
0: 80% know, overall,
1: uh, it was 80% overall, but it was no, it was, yeah. was it still, it was still 80%. I thought, okay, well, anyway, it was
0: 80% in April still, which is okay. amazing. It was, it was, you know, it was
1: 80% less than a month ago. Right. So this isn't like, ago. so I mean, but I mean, but this point, thing. you say, well, it's not that I'm saying that that was not controversial. The point was, it was controversial, even though people were doing it.
0: Yeah. So, you know, then some of the things that got added in the amendment and some of these were freestanding bills that people then tacked on as this, as the train started to leave the station, people were throwing their bags on the train, <laughs> um, you know, so they created the Texas Epidemic Public Health Institute at uh, the health center in Houston, UT Health Center in Houston, and, that, and then linked that, and this was an amendment to the amendment, if I remember correctly, and, and that institute is going to report to the oversight committee, not to the governor, which is interesting. Uh, there was an amendment, there's an amendment that will prohibit local officials from requiring closures. And then another thing that was a freestanding bill that I think got added to this, an emergency management tech system, which is very popular in our polling, as I recall. So this coming in the trajectory, you know, I, I, I'm still not exactly sure what I think about all this. I mean, look, I, one thing I think for sure is that, I don't want to say idiosyncratic, but let's call it the specific nature of the Texas constitution and the way it reflects the the political culture of the state, not to sound like a Texas 306 teacher, but, you know, the idea that, you know, we're going to have the, you know, the legislature is asserting itself to some degree and in some, you know, noticeable, I think real ways against the executive here in a way that I think is kind of pretty consistent with the legislative focus you know, with a bunch of asterisks of the Texas Constitution. And it's almost, you know, we've talked a lot in the last few years about the efforts of, of particularly Greg Abbott, but to some degree, uh, Governor Perry, but particularly Governor Abbott, you know, to build, you know, to, to strengthen the role of the executive where he could in a way that, you know, had a noticeable impact to my mind on. The constitutionally created balance of power between the branches, and it's been a while since we've seen the legislature push back in any meaningful way. Frankly,
1: well, in my view, well, you know, and I mean, I think you know, despite seventy-seven percent approval, that you know, even though this is an extremely inside baseball kind of debate, I mean, this is not something that I mean. First of all, think about all the provisions you've listed. I mean, you know. And, and all and then again, the shifting coalitions, yeah. depending on what the provision is that you're talking about. I mean, ultimately, there's a lot of things in this bill for for voters of various stripes to like. I mean, if you're just a Democrat and you're asked, "Hey, do you want to take powers away from the governor in the next pandemic?" the answer is yes. If you're a conservative Republican who doesn't like the way that, you know Abbott managed the pandemic, there's something for you to like here too. Even if you're a moderate, you know, let's say a center right Republican, I don't want to say moderate, but a center right Republican who doesn't like the way the localities handled it, but are happy with Abbott there's something for you to like here. But ultimately, the fact that there's so much in here that, you know, really places new limitations, reorients the relationship between the legislature and the executive branch, especially around this stuff, shows, you know, some extent go back where I started here, how a governor with 77% job approval and $40 million is definitely going to see multiple primary challengers because the pandemic was a messy thing. And it was especially messy for Republicans who, again, you know, we've said this before, but pandemic requires, you know, a large government response, and it requires people to behave to to engage in collective actions, which is not really doesn't really cohere with Republican ideologies. It relates to limited government and individual responsibility,
0: right? And and these are things that we know are you know kind of animate you know the political culture and animate
1: well, and animate you know, the kind of people the, who the get active and re- right. when people and really activate the types of politicians and the types of you know voters who get activated in Republican primaries to a greater degree. You
0: know, and we asked about this and we got 55, you know, we asked people, do you support or oppose limiting the emergency powers of the Texas governor during a pandemic or similar health emergency? It was clearly aimed at, you know, taking people's temperature broadly on this. And, you know, we got 55 support and 40% oppose. And, And to your point about, you know, this is, you know, these kinds of institutional questions, you're automatically asking people to think about things at a level that a lot of people don't think about. So we got eighteen percent saying, oh, "I don't know."
1: Yeah, um, well, the, but there the, was a
0: lot of you know, but there was a lot of Republican support, even if it wasn't, even if it was closely divided. I mean, it was forty three, forty five among Republicans. Well, and so, I'll put it
1: this way: if you're a Republican voter who had heard anything about this conflict before us asking you this question on the survey, you're probably a Republican primary voter. It's um, just, yeah. it's just. I mean, it's just such an, I mean, it's just such a, you have to be paying a a good amount of attention. I mean, just from all the other polling we've done that we, where we talk about sort of, you know, nexus of government power type questions, it's just not something a lot of people are thinking about. Although,
0: although I would say this is probably a little more salient than, than usual. Yeah. I agree with that. Because of the context of the pandemic. And it's like, you know, these stories were not on, you know, these were not A4 or even B1 stories. These were A1 stories
1: Mm -hmm.
0: as, you know, as, as the governor was being challenged. So I think, you know, I mean, only 11, you know, you know, I mean, although to, you know, to your point, you know, 21% of, of Democrats and, and, you know, again, a third of independents, no surprise there, you know, had, you know, said they didn't know in response to this question, but only 11% of Republicans said they didn't know. So, you know, but I mean, you know, I mean, one doesn't want to undersell the degree to which, you know, as we watch this unfold, fold on the floor, there was some classic log rolling going on here. I mean, there was a little something, you know, but you kind of said this, I think in a slightly different way, but at the level of like what was going on in the room yesterday, in the mm-hmm. chamber yesterday, there's a little something for everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some of the Republicans, the primary Republicans or, you know, kind of activist Republicans, if you will, you know, got these assurances that, that local, you know, local prerogatives would be hemmed in, you know, institute, call them legislatively institutional Republicans who felt like for whatever reason, the legislature should have had more say, got a little something out of this. There was a little something for everybody, you know, Democrats got some more legislative oversight and some science out of this. So, you know, the way this, this unfolded was an interesting example of how the house works. Right and how the legislature works. Now, having said that, what we should say is that, you know, if the House gives its, you know, if this survives third reading, which I'm sh- I'm pretty sure it will, um, it's unclear wh- whether the Senate, what the Senate is going to do. There's no companion bill, so this is going to get shipped shipped over to the Senate. You know, the bill that they voted out was very different from this. Required the governor to call a special session in order to declare a state emergency that lasts more than thirty days. But also included a, a, a potential constitutional amendment, right? So that would require the approval of Texas voters. So it's unclear whether the House and the Senate are actually going to settle. But that's an, you know, but well, going into a primary election, that's very interesting. It's well, that's very another interesting one of thing
1: those. You know, was that was that the Senate you know pushing its preferred option, pushing an option to knew it wasn't going to go anywhere, or waiting for the House to deal with the mess of it and see what came out.
0: Yeah, and, and there's been a lot of that, as there isn't in, in, in any session. There's been a lot of that going on between the Senate and, and the House on this. So there's a lot of cross currents here.
1: I want to I want to clarify one. I want to be fair to Don Huffines here, Senator say, uh, Senator you, Huffines. Yes, I was just, your, well,
0: your conscience is bothering you a little, is
1: it? Well a little. I want to be, <laughs> I want to be, I don't want to be too flip here. And part of the reason, you know, when you said, you know, what do you think of his candidacy? And I said not much, and it's not because, you know, he's not potentially a credible candidate or who won't fund himself. You know, the thing that I've actually been thinking about in all of this is the fact that, you know, the delayed census count is going to make this really hard for challengers. I mean, ultimately everybody knows who Abbott is. Everybody knows who Patrick is every, you know, people know who Paxton is. And, you know, and so ultimately to the extent that, you know, for Republican elected officials who enjoy pretty solid job approval numbers amongst Republican voters, the delayed calendar on that means that, you know, other Republicans who are going to come forward. What I mean is another Republican who's going to come forward and seriously have to challenge habit is going to have to have higher name ID than Huffines to begin with, I think. I think they're going to have to come in with a little bit of a coalition or some of their own voters, people who voted for them statewide before. I think that's really, if there's going to be a serious challenge, it's going to have to be someone like that. It would have to be, and I'm not speculating in any way, but it would have to be a Patrick. It would have to be a Sid Miller. It'd have to be a Ken Paxton. It had to be somebody else, I think. I mean, even Alan West, I think, you know, that's I think that's a challenge for him. Except that he'd be on TV like all the time. But, you know, I think that's the one thing I, so when I was saying, you know, I don't think much of it, I just I don't think he's the the right person to put up a strong challenge against Adams. Yeah. In that's the context it, I mean, we face. Okay. You should you should feel good about that. Okay. I just want to throw that out there.
0: You know, I mean I I, I do want to say that I, you know the, the, late, the delayed, if there's a delayed primary, one could also argue that it might be helpful because it gives them more time. Now, if the field gets more crowded, as you're saying, and then it gets harder for Huffines, but a delayed primary, I think overall, if you're an incumbent, it's generally all things being equal, it's not good. Because, you know, it, it just creates more space for... You know things to happen or for whoever to build support. Now, you know it doesn't negate all of your advantages. That's why it's kind of an all things being equal thing. But
1: yeah, I mean the other th- another element of this I think is be interesting to play out in the future in terms of all these conflicts you're talking about is the role that Abbott's money plays in down ballot races. I mean he's sort of positioned himself or been positioned by others or propositioned by others as the savior at various points using you know his. Money in his operation to help down ballot candidates. And so, you know, the idea that there's all this conflict about, you know, I'm curious to yeah. see how much that sort of, you know, transitions. Yeah, I mean, I, I
0: you know, I would be more definite about that. I mean, I think that, you know, that was a strategy and it's a strategy that they've t- undertaken well, sure. purposefully. And, you
1: they know, weren't, they weren't giving away the money for fun.
0: You know, I think that's, <laughs> you know, that they definitely, you know, did that on purpose and will do that again. I think to the extent that they have it and that they'll have the money to do it. Um, So we wound up going back, but. um,
1: Sorry, it's my conscience.
0: Yeah. So at that point, I think I'll just, you know, call an abrupt end to this and (laughs) say, um, you know, for those of you listening, you know, it'll be interesting to watch this bill and see how these institutional politics play out some more uh, as the the legislature enters its final frantic weeks. And I see no signs that it's going to get any less frantic. So, uh, we'll be back probably with things to talk about in, on the legislative front next week. Thanks to Josh for being here. Thanks to the, uh, our excellent technical crew in the Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to you for listening. Lots of the data we talked about and much more on our website, texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.